Who are you? Name's Griff. I work here. That's funny. Dad never told me he hired another guy. And who are you? Bud. Al Bundy's my father. That's funny. He never told me he had a son. <laughs> Daughter? Nope. Wife? Not living. <laughs> Four touchdowns in one game? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, look, if you're looking for some peace and quiet, I won't bother you anymore. I'm just here because I don't have any other place to go. I used to have a place to go. <laughs> then I got divorced. Now I got two places I don't go. <laughs> yep. Divorced. She got the house, the car, the money. I got the right to remain silent. <laughs> now, Griff, you've survived the other initiation rites. The purchasing of panty shields in broad daylight. <laughs> the attending a Julio concert in wig and matching ensemble. <laughs> Are you ready for the third and final challenge? Hey, I've got an ex-wife and I work in a shoe store. I feel no pain. <laughs> Hiya, butter. <laughs> this is, um, shoehorn or plenty. <laughs> You're mouthing with Calvin. Who's this? Griff. Griff, my man, you have a last name? Um, X. Griff X. Are you Muslim, as in Malcolm X? No, I'm, I'm divorced, as in screwed over by the X. Was that Al Bundy? <laughs> no, that was me, Griff. You know, when I get excited, I sound Caucasian. All right, cannibal. We know you ate those people. Now confess. I haven't eaten anyone. <laughs> I don't even like ribs. <laughs> Call my ex-wife. We did. She said she once caught you pouring chocolate syrup on her best friend. That wasn't cannibalism, that was adultery. <laughs> Sorry, wrong house. <laughs> that Negro family, where they live, next door? This is Harold Sylvester, also known as Griff, and you are listening to the Married with Children podcast. Let's rock. Thanks, Dad. Can I get a woman? No Man Presents, live from the Nudie Bar, the Married with Children Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Married with Children fans worldwide, I'm Chris Gunter, and today I would like to welcome you to a very special edition of the Married with Children Podcast. Tyler, Matt, and I have the utmost honor of interviewing an actor who the entire podcast team feels was the most important addition to the cast of Married with Children in its third and final act from the beginning of Season 9 through the end of Season 11. We were first introduced to his character, Griff, in Season 9, Episode 4, Naughty But Niece. Last week, we reviewed one of his signature performances on Married with Children, I Can't Believe It's Butter. 
He appeared in a total of 44 episodes and in our opinion should have received top billing on the show for its last three seasons. And here he is with us today in the nudie bar, Mr. Harold Sylvester. Hey guys, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us. Trust me, the, the pleasure is all, all ours. Uh, we're very excited to have you. So um, why don't we just go ahead and start from the top? Uh, you know, Harold, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about your childhood years, what got you into acting, that type of thing. Okay, yeah. I often quote uh, you know, the old Bill Cosby line, I started off as a child, and I did. <laughs> Grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, you know, born to of the oldest of what uh, ultimately became four kids, uh, born to Harold and Velma Sylvester. We lived in uh, uptown New Orleans, you know, when I came along in the, uh, uh, what I, what feels like the 1800s, uh, but, uh, yeah, 1949. My first, my earliest memories, uh, you know, my first apartment, it was, I guess people would call it a cold water flat these days. One room, you know, about 20 by 20, that was the entirety of, of, of our living space. Uh-huh. Uh, living room, kitchen, dining room, bathroom, that, you know, all essentially in that one room. And we had a light bulb you know, in the middle, you know, hanging from a, 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 a cord. Uh, that was our only source of light. Yeah, there was a cold water sink, no hot water. And then the bathrooms were actually outhouses at the end of the alley. <laughs> so that was my first existence. That was the earliest uh, you know, memories that I have of uh, life on the planet. Uh, at age five, you know, we moved into uh, the Calliope Housing Projects in New Orleans. Uh-huh. Uh, and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Uh, you know, we actually had a toilet inside that you could actually flush. <laughs> so needless to say, well, yeah, I started off poor. You know, since you know, my life, and even during, you know, there were even fond, fond memories of poverty, uh, and so, but I've led a magical, absolutely magical life. Totally, you know, very humble beginnings, just as as, as you said, but you overcame that. I was reading your online bio, you, you actually turned down an offer to Harvard, and you ended up going to Tulane University and playing uh, college basketball there, is that correct? That is correct. Long story in that as well. That Coldwater flat that we're talking about, you know, and again, you've got to remember 1949 was a very different time in this country you know, in, in terms of uh, you know, integration, you know, socialization, etc. That house, you know, it was in uptown New Orleans and, you know, really kind of a very fashionable area, uh, you know, uptown. It was an upscale area. But as, as places were, were constructed, you know, there was the, the mansions, you know, because I mean, literally, I was born four blocks from St. Charles Avenue, which is the, the grand boulevard in New Orleans. And still to, to this day, it's a streetcar line, you know, and the multi-million dollar now mansions. But, you know, behind all those mansions, you know, historically, there were other buildings built for the help. You know, I mean, you know, right. if you go back you know, far enough, there were slave quarters, and then, you know, I mean, the, you know, the quarters you know, of, the, of the people who helped manage the mansions. Yeah. Yeah, so that was uh, kind of uh, the area that was, that was uh, born in, and I said all that to say, if you track my trajectory, that house that I was born into is literally six blocks, you know, from Tulane University's campus. 
So I could literally eat. I mean, it was in my, my neighborhood. But for most of my life, I could not cross that fence, you know, to even take a walk on the university campus. Uh, and so, you know, so flash forward, time to think about college. You know, my primary life, my thoughts about future, you know, were all about basketball. Right. Um, yeah, I was a high school American basketball player and I had, you know, more than 150 college scholarship offers. Uh-huh. But another little aside, I went to what, you know, I still consider the best high school in the United States. Went to a place called St. Augustine's High School, uh, run by the Joseph mm-hmm. High Fathers, you know, again in New Orleans. Uh, progressive uh, for the times, especially, but uh, still progressive to this day. All boys school, but you know, very much college prep uh, and stuff. So uh, they got us ready for a lot of different things and challenges. One of those things, obviously, there was an educational emphasis uh, you know, for all of us. When it came down to making choices, you know, being a basketball player was one choice. You know, got recruited by you know, just about everybody, but the education was important, equally as important. And the Ivy Leagues, you know, I mean, again, were in sight. Yeah, so, so I, yes, I did get accepted to Harvard, but because of the political environment, made the choice to do the integration bit at Tulane. Yeah, the world was a lot different, you know, particularly the United States. I mean, you know, of course, we still have a long ways to go, but things definitely were different. So, Harold, I just got to add on here, you know, I'm a huge basketball fan myself, and, and I grew up playing, and, you know, when I was a kid, I probably would have imagined I'd be in the NBA right now. Unfortunately, I didn't have the talent like you. <laughs> I was just curious, did you ever play against any any future Hall of Famers? I see you were coming up around the time, I guess this was a little bit after the Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell era, but uh, just as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in that era was coming along. Did you play against any of those guys? I played against a lot of those guys. Uh, yeah, I can believe it or not. Kareem being one, uh-huh. yeah, that was you know, single and important. You know, we came out to play UCLA in 1968. You know, and, and again, a memorable game. Uh, you know, I can actually, I mean, I played center. Uh-huh. I'm only 6'5", but uh, <laughs> I played center in college. And yeah. uh, the cream game, I mean, you know, my best memory is, I can tell you what it looks like to watch that uh, hook shot <laughs> from the bottom. <laughs> I was just, I was going to ask, did he ever hit one of those sky hooks over you? <laughs> he, he, he hit a lot of sky hooks o- over me, you know. But the bottom line is that you know, again, it was a, a dawning game. I, a couple of things happened, man. I tell you about that game that was memorable. Uh, I jumped center against him, you know, and I got uh, both taps. I don't know if you remember back in the day, you, you tapped at the beginning of the game and then again at halftime. Oh yeah, they sure did, didn't they? Right. Mm-hmm. And and you know, I attribute it, you know, not to my incredible leaping ability, but to a uh, you know a, a sympathetic referee, you know, who didn't throw <laughs> it up high enough for Kareem to get it, uh, and so 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 we actually got uh, you know the first half scored first, and then went on to you know get killed, <laughs> having them beat us by thirty five points. That were they throwing it to Kareem every every time inside? <laughs> that 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 was their game. You know, and wouldn't you? you know, oh, absolutely. Crazy. I mean, especially if I was guarding him. I mean, if someone like me was guarding Kareem, I'd tell the I'd tell my players throw it inside every time. <laughs> but let me go through you know, a short list of, of the Hall of Famers. Okay. Tulane, our, our arch rivalry was with LSU. 
Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so so my years almost matched up with uh, Pete Maravich's. Okay, Pistol Pete. Okay. I- exactly. Yeah, you know I mean, so that is a. Uh, I have more memories of Pete you know, than anybody else. Uh, you know, particularly since I'm actually working on a project that involves him and 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 those years. And so, but you know, God, man, you t- you t- Bernard King, obviously, you know, I I never played against, but Bernard and I played together in that Fast Break movie. Yeah, and, and, and of course, if you guys are basketball fans, you know that Bernard is one of the top 50 ever. Uh, oh, absolutely. He was right. a scoring machine, man. He was a scoring machine. Exactly. But on that list is also, you know, guys like Dave Cowan. Just, uh, go oh God, uh, Charlie Scott, I mean, from uh, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, the list is long. The list is long. Awesome. So a lot of fun, I mean, again, through college. That's pretty cool. According to IMDb, I was looking at your IMDb, you have uh, 79 actor credits, uh, seven producer credits, four writer credits, four director credits. That may or may not be inclusive, but it says you started your career with an appearance on The Night of the Strangler back in 1972. Is that correct? That is correct, man. Yeah, again, uh, still in college, yeah, just out of college, and a bunch of uh, guys who were all Tulane alum. Uh, and business people in New Orleans, uh, you know, theater owners and, and and producers, you know, et cetera, put together that film on a very low budget. Hey, boy, where do you think you're going? Oh, excuse me. Uh, this is uh, Detective Bunch, my uh, partner. This is, uh, who'd you say you were again? Markham. Jack Markham. Yeah, Mr. Markham, this is Mr. Bunch. Mr. Markham is uh, Mr. Robert's uh, law partner. Hello? Excuse me. How are we outside, Tony? Right. Mr. Robert? Yes. We'll be through here in a little while. But tonight, anyway. Be nice if you can answer a couple of questions. What do you want to know? And you know you don't have to say anything, don't you? That's right, Mr. Robert. You think about it. I'll be right back. Is a crazy, you know that? What? You heard me, man. I said you honkies are crazy. What do you mean by that, Jim? Uh, I mean, we shoot them or we cut them. But a snake? <laughs> Shit. Hey, Jim. What do you think that snake was really meant for? That's a good question. Good memories about that because, yeah, bottom line is it was not a great movie <laughs> and it was very low budget. I, I played a, a, a young police detective with a bad haircut, uh, by the way, and uh, the budget was so low, me and my police partner had to share a gun between us. Uh, and stuff. So, you know, one of my best memories is the chase scene that we did, uh, you know, in the movie. Every time we came around a corner, we had to take the gun from one or the other, uh, and so so that we can continue. But but it was a fun experience. It was obviously my first film experience, acting experience on film. And so I you know I cherish it, uh, you know, for those reasons, and and some friends uh, to this day. <laughs> That's a common thing that we've heard from 
some different people we've interviewed is like you know when you're starting out a lot of times it's low budget or whatever you know you take uh you take what you can get to get the ball rolling you know exactly right so, and, and another absolutely. curiosity about that movie is that uh it got released in a drive-in uh, you know in in, in 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 new orleans that was the, uh, the premiere in a drive-in theater and before it was it was done with its run it got re-released under four different titles ace of spades dirty dan one other title and then night of the strength and the curious thing about it was that nobody in the movie gets strangled huh so figure that that's funny well hey i mean if it was released in new orleans that's neat though i mean i'm sure that was really big for you and your family and your uh, you know your classmates and stuff like that that's pretty neat it, it, it was fun for the limited amount of people who actually knew about it <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how your career progressed from starting off in 1972, early 70s, on into the early to mid-90s prior to Married with Children. One of the luckiest things that ever happened to me is I got cast in a uh, TV movie, a TV, I guess they called a miniseries at the time, called uh, The Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, directed by John Cordy you know, and starring Cicely Tyson as, uh, as Jane Pittman. Ned. I tell you, you get down out of the wagon. Get down out of the wagon, Ned. Ain't got nothing but a double barrel, Ned. You gonna need both of them to bring me down. Take the lump and finish the school. Ned, let me take him. Talk to Mama. Talk to Vivian. It's important. Ned, you're important. Let me take it. Ma'am, do as I say. Elsie will get us both. And that became, you know, kind of the uh, uh, the launching pad for me. John Cordy liked, you know, the, the, the little stuff that I did. You know, I had a couple, three scenes in, in that project. But uh, he actually recommended me you know, to a um, an agency. Uh, you know, you know, in Los Angeles, and allowed me, uh, you know, and again to think that I might actually uh, be able uh, afford to think about uh, a career yeah, and stuff. So, um, and after Jane Pittman, I did a little movie called uh, Part Two Sounder. And how the Morgan family do while Big Nathan was gone? Oh, we was just holding on to a string, waiting for you to come and rescue us. <laughs> and I'm the best rescuer in the whole parish. You also is a big bragger, too. <laughs> Daddy, why are you laughing? Why am I laughing? Well, I'm laughing because... David Lee, tell your sister why I'm laughing. He's laughing because he don't know what next to say. <laughs> Boy, you is getting too smart for your britches. Now, come here. Get him, Daddy. Come here. Come here. Where you get your wind from this time of day? I just don't know. Now, stop playing with the children. Tell me how we made out at the weigh-in station. $20. $20? That's right. Best month we had in five or six years. And next month, I'm going to do even better. <laughs> now, that calls for me to cook something real special tonight. 
Miss Rebecca? Yes, Nathan? You always does things that's special. Why, thank you, Mr. Nathan. Essentially, uh, a, a remake at, for television of, um, you know, the Sister Tyson, Paul Winfield movie, Sounder. And, uh, you know, I, I, I did that. And then, uh, you know, moved to Los Angeles, uh, you know, subsequently. And things got started, uh, you know, for real then. But it was, uh, you know, th those two projects, Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman and then the Sounder Project, that got me to even thinking about uh, any kind of career in this town. Yeah, awesome. We noticed it says here um, you were part of a short-lived sitcom called Mary uh, back in 1986, which had a great cast, by the way. It had Mary Tyler Moore on it. John Aston, and it also had Katie Seagal on it. We all know Katie, of course, as playing Peg Bundy on Married with Children. Hey, everybody, you know who I just saw in the building? Frank Sinatra. Get out of here, Frank yeah. Sinatra. I saw him with my own two eyes. Hey, got his autograph, too. Best wishes, Lee Iacocca. Oh. Well, that explains his reaction when I asked him what it was like to make love to Ava Gardner. Do you have any memories from that? Lots of memories, man. First of all, if my memory is correct, I think it was Katie's first job. You know, so it's obviously where we, where we met. And but it, also curiously, I think married with children was her second job. We used to joke. I will often ask her, "Where are we going next?" Because I seem to be following your trail. And so, but so yeah, we had uh, an early well, eighty six is. Is you know, mid career was mid career for me, and, and so but uh, we met then, and luckily uh, bumped uh, into each other again, you know, on Married with Children. But you know, the memories of that show, we've got to start with Mary Tyler Moore herself, who is an incredible legend, was an incredible presence, and I was honored, you know, again to be on that show. A lot of fun. John Aston was on as well, and. and and that, like you say, a pretty memorable cast. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's always neat to work with someone and then see them, you know, years later and, and get to work with them again like that, I'm sure. And realize, you know, I mean, you know, looking back, you know, I mean, what wonderful natural talent Katie had and, and has. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean she's, she's, she's brilliant. And I think, you know, most people don't know how good she is. Well, maybe they do. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, we've seen her do some amazing stuff over the course of 35 years now, roughly. So mm -hmm. so I was looking at some of your other credits here, and I'm, I'm going to just read some of these out. And, you know, if, if any of these mean anything to you, you can stop me and, and share some memories as I go along. So as we know, Harold is best known for his role on the TV series Married with Children as Griff, the co-worker and friend of Al Bundy at the shoe store. Some of his other TV roles include the miniseries mini Wheels in 1978, Barnaby Jones in the episode entitled A Desperate Pursuit in 1979. What the hell are you doing Mr. here? Ferrari. It's nine o'clock in the morning. Please, I've got to talk to you. You know where my office is. Make an appointment. What the hell do you think you're doing? Please. I'm sorry, Mr. Ferrari, but you got to listen to me. Did Graham send you? It's my fight you canceled. That's only because you're in Graham's stable. 
What do you expect me to do? Let him go on doping his fighters? He never doped me, not me. Look, I've earned my shot at the title, and you know it. Then you'll get it. As soon as you get another manager. Yeah, but I'm tied into him. He won't let me go. He will, sooner or later. Because I'm putting him out of business. Later may be too late, don't you understand that? Look, my chance is right now. I'm ready, Mr. Ferrari. There's nothing I can do. Yes, there is something. You can fix it. Look, you're the man who says who fights and who doesn't. That's right, Jim. I do. The short-lived 1981 series, Walking Tall... Over this errand. Uh, I'm over at the Jenkins place, uh, about three, four minutes from you. That do you any good? You better believe it, Aaron. We're heading for the railroad crossing. Yellow 71 Plymouth, three, Lima, one, niner, four, four. I'm on my way. Ben, I'll have to check with you later. Today's FBI, Mary, which we just spoke about. Hey. Well, I've got stories about all of those. Awesome. Yeah, go right ahead. Man, uh, you know, wheels, you know, again, was, was an extremely important uh, milestone uh, for, you know, for me. Uh, and so because I was under contract to Universal Studios. And so, so it was one of those, you know, it's at the point in my career when I started getting inserted into Universal projects. You know, while I was there, Universal had 28 hours of television. You know, and, and if you can imagine, one company having that kind of thing uh, today. Aside from the streaming platform, of course, but you know, Universal was the place to be. And being a young contract actor was uh, all the momentum I needed you know, to have at least a stable career going forward. And so, but Wheels, uh, you know, we just spent an hour on that, uh, <laughs> was, was memorable for a number of reasons. You know, and again, remember the times. Yeah, and I'm playing uh, you know, an athlete football player in an interracial relationship mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the 1970s. You know, so, you know, quote unquote, you know, that kind of controversy. And so, but, uh, you know, the real controversy, personal, you know, for me is that uh, I was playing against somebody that I later worked with in another capacity. And there is a tie-in uh, you know, to these stories. In Wheels had two girlfriends. <laughs> One black, one white. As it turns out, I've made a choice about one over the other. And so, and, and it, it, it came to the point where I had to tell Lisa Eilbacher that she was on the outs. And so, but in that scene, it was scripted that we kissed. Uh, a kiss that never happened. And so, because the day we were going to shoot it, we got, we got the word from the network. Uh, and so that the kiss was not allowed. And, and when you're two actors and you're prepared for something, you know, and it's making, you know, you know, uh, you know, even at the time that it's making a statement, it was a very disappointing moment. It's it probably angriest I've ever been on a set. You know, I mean, not out of control. Yeah, I was affected by it. So the kid, that kiss never happened in, you know, in wheels. Uh, you're doing a scene where I tell her goodbye, and but I, I need your car. You know, so I can make my escape. It's a whole long scenario. So, you know, again, that was a moment for me. Uh, but, I mean, and, and the payoff, you know, for, you know, for Lisa and I came 
years later during an officer and a gentleman. We actually did a scene that uh, you did where we were all ending our officer training uh, program and we were celebrating in a bar. And if you go back and look at that scene, you'll notice that Lisa is sitting on my lap as I sit at the bar. That was our little mini statement saying, here's what you get for not letting us get that kiss. That's awesome, man. It sounds like it came full circle. It did. (laughs) That's great. As a lot of life has. I mean, I can imagine that'd be really frustrating to to work that hard and prepare for something and then be told that you can't do it. Right. For for those kinds of silly political, sociological reasons. Right. But, you know, you got the last laugh, so I'd say it worked out. We'll see. (laughs) It's not over yet. (laughs) I won't bore you with the other memorable moments. Oh, you're not boring us. We can we can sit here and listen to these stories all night long. <laughs> you're not boring us at all. <laughs> well, on that list, and I, I don't know if you mentioned this movie, but you know, my favorite movie, it, it may be my favorite of all time, I certainly had a, a, a wonderful experience on a movie called Inside Moves uh, that was uh, directed by Dick Donner. Now, 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 you got a couple of seconds? I just got two questions that I want to ask you real short, okay? Tough luck, huh? Look, tight shot, just on his face, all right? Are you rolling on this thing? We're ready? Okay, good. Al, a great ball game for you individually tonight, but what about the last two seconds? Well, I came off the pick, and I got the pass from Abernath, and I, I had the shot, but so I'm cutting down. That's a lie, man. You've been out. Stop the shot. down, okay? We can't use this thing. Let's, 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 hey, let's go. Come on, let's talk to you later, Al. Come on, let's go. Let's see if we can talk to him. Abernath's not worth it, man. You're going to push so hard, he doesn't understand Al, you got to remember that panic is dumb. You made that shot thousands of times. Just relax, man. Alvin, why don't you take care of that jerk once and for all? Why don't you get out of here, man? You don't know what the hell you're talking about. I don't, man. I can beat you any day of the week. Hey, why don't you be cool? You're making a fool out of yourself. Why not? Why don't we go one-on-one? Oh, okay, see, just how big a fool go. I am. Look, no, wait a minute, Wes. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay, man. Okay. We'll do it. I got practice tomorrow at 11. You meet me at the arena at 10.30 and be on time. I'll be there. We'll do it. All right. Okay, guys. Come on. If you get the hey, balls, you'll be there. What? Get out of there. I was talking to him. Okay. Take off. That way. Yeah, you know, and, and as it turns out, I, he had just finished directing uh, Christopher Reeves in Superman. Okay. And this was you know, his you know, his next, his, his tiny project You know, that turned out to be, I think, maybe the best film that I've, I've ever been involved in. Yeah, so if you get a chance, uh, you know, take a look. John Savage, David Morse, Diana Scarwood, other very memorable actors in a very memorable film that was on everybody's top 10 list the, the year that it got reviewed. So, you know, if you get a chance, you know, I mean, uh, take a look at that one. I will definitely check it out. I was going down some of the other ones here. Uh, you know, we talked about uh, today's FBI, uh, Mary, we spoke about, Shaky Ground. <laughs> sleep all night what's happening to our society yeah sometimes it seems like the world is just going to hell in a handbasket and that's another thing hell in a handbasket well what's that mean anyway <laughs> it's not bad enough going to hell how does a handbasket make it any worse <laughs> it's just an expression bob i didn't make it up Moody, don't tell me you're still whining about your close encounter with the slimy underbelly of society. Yeah, 
You think I'd be used to it after working with you? <laughs> Look, Dannenberg, you'd be upset too if your home was burglarized. It couldn't happen. My condominium has an armed guard and one of the most sophisticated electronic alarm systems available. How nice of the warden to let you off for work. <laughs> Take off the rose-colored glasses, gentlemen. We live in an urban jungle. The police can't protect you from the murdering animals out there. Oh, but you two bumpkins go right on thinking you live in Mayberry. <laughs> Think we can get Floyd the barber to strangle little Opie in his sleep? In a different world... I was on the subway platform, mm -hmm. and this man dressed up like St. Nicholas tried to mug me. And, ooh, he's really quite a pathetic soul. Till he took my shopping bag. Baby, you okay? I'm fine. I ran up the platform. I called police. He went down there and got him, and I even managed to save the present. Whitley, the next time you get mugged, don't resist. Just give them what they want and get out of there with your life. Oh, I couldn't do that and let him take Mrs. Wayne's present for you. Oh, gosh, we must talk. Let's sit down and talk. You guys leave. Leave, leave. Let's go, fellas. The most recent TV show in which he starred was The Army Show. Gentlemen. <laughs> I was just blasted out of the sky by friendly fire during peacetime. <laughs> And that's not good for anybody. I can explain, sir. You see, I was requalifying the troops on the mortar range, and uh, the thing went awry. Very, very awry. Far too awry, if you ask me. Would you like to take a shot, Sergeant? Yes, sir. I would certainly agree with the lieutenant's awry assessment, sir. If the lieutenant had checked the awry trajectory, I do not think the lieutenant would have ordered us to fire the mortar in the first place. Sir! You... You ordered them to fire on my helicopter, Handy? No, sir! That is not on your helicopter, more at a bird. A bird? <laughs> a three-ton, forest-green, metal bird with machine guns mounted on its side. <laughs> You know, I believe that species is protected by the United States government. <laughs> Sylvester had a starring role in the TV series City of Angels. Had two John Doe's coming last night, Dr. Turner. I guess the resident mixed up the choice. You're not going to find Mr. Smalls with you in the way. You know, also, uh, you know, there was no death summary with your patient. Now, without a death summary, the only thing we can tell is the name of the resident who worked him up and, you know, the fact that it was John Doe. It's my fault I didn't get to the death summary. Nope. And you also asked for the patient that came in at 9 o'clock, you know, which the big white fellow was. Oh, that's when Mr. Smalls came in. N no, Smalls came in at 8.30. I see if death summary would help clear that up, too. Well, I'm sorry my paperwork wasn't exactly in order, Window. Yeah, well, you know, I'm just trying to understand my position, so this won't have to get kicked upstairs. It doesn't have to get anywhere if we find the man immediately. Nobody's in there, Dr. Turner. Then where's Mr. Smalls? Hey, hey. How about I call you when I find him? Move it. the hell that getting there and he has made guest appearances on many tv shows ranging from the eddie capra mysteries to hill street blues 
He had an appointment to see Marcus. Marcus Peabody? Right. Uh, who's the kid? Diablo, that crazy freak that jumped him this morning. I knew something was wrong with him, dude. I knew something was wrong. Marcus said, let him in, though, you know? So he goes in. Yeah, unit 223. Starts We have a hostage situation at the Youth Corps Job Center. A Diablo kid has Marcus Peabody. You tell her shoot Martinez. If you don't want to take care of business, I'm gonna do it. You hear me? I'll kill him. Tell me, you better get Martinez in here. Take care of business. To murder, she wrote to NYPD Blue. Detective Lacalci has told me she killed Angelo Marino and his driver. I placed her under arrest. She's aware of her rights, and she'd like to give a full statement now. I think you should have a lawyer representing you. I'd like to get this over with. Detective, without knowing the details of the situation here, I think before you say anything else, you should have a lawyer representing you. I don't want a lawyer. You sure? I'm sure. So any stories about any of those? I've got stories about just about all of them. <laughs> you know, pick <laughs> one, man. City of Angels, for example. I, I actually started off on that show as a writer. I'll go back one further. That high school I was telling you about, uh, you know, St. Augustine's, I actually got my first, did my first piece of writing telling a story about a secret basketball game uh, you know, that we played in 1965, you know, again, in New Orleans, uh, between you know, my high school, which is all black, and Jesuit high school, which is all white. We were in two separate athletic leagues, and we played this game in total secrecy, uh, except for you know, our only audience was faculty and and and, and members of, of our various families, and it, it w might might have remained secret. Yeah, you know, I mean, except a newspaper reporter who was there leaked you know the story and it became controversial, and I ended up writing a movie about it. Yeah, you know, that movie was Passing Glory. Josephite brothers of St. Augustine remain dedicated to the goal of incorporating the Negro people into the church and American society. New Orleans, 1965. High school basketball was a religion, but there were two very separate churches. We're number one! Yeah! The trophy don't mean jack to y'all players. Just one game. The white high school champions versus the black high school champions. You do not have the right to force people to change their way of life. The time for turning the other cheek has passed. You gotta go make things hard. It isn't a rumble, it's a game. And I built a school, but I will not see it destroyed. Don't you be the wall that keeps them back. Real proud of what you've done, standing up and all. You're stepping up there for me, Trap. For all them brothers ain't never had a shot. I believe we have ourselves a basketball game. One game would rock a nation forever. Imagine a black man become heavyweight champion of the world. Joe Lewis had the glory that night, but he didn't keep it to himself. He passed it on. And today, that same glory is waiting out there to be passed on to you. Ah! Emmy winners, Andre Brower. If you sit in the back of the bus too long, you think you belong there. Rip Torn. We shouldn't be digging tunnels. We should be pushing the walls down. And Ruby D. You got laundry. Pick the shots. 
You gotta make a cow. From Quincy Jones, Magic Johnson, and Hoop Dreams director Steve James comes a movie written by Harold Sylvester about what it takes to be a champion. Passing Glory, based on a true story. I don't know if that's on that list at all. And so, because, you know, a lot of writing credits get, you know, get lost. And so, but, I, you know, I started writing then. And um, uh, I went on to uh, get hired uh, by Stephen Bochco, who I'd worked for a number of times. Stephen and I were both contract babies at Universal back in the 70s. Uh, uh-huh. and so I did a show that he wrote with Stephen Connell called Richie Brockelman, Private Eye. <laughs> with Dennis Dugan, you know, again in in the lead in that and stuff. So, so had a developing relationship over the years. He did a number of shows for Stephen Bochco. Uh-huh. So I write Passing Glory, and then I get a call telling me that he was going to do this medical drama about an African American hospital, you know, uh, set somewhere, and ask if I want to be involved. And so yes, you know, I obviously did want to uh, to be involved. So I started off on the show as a writer. And, you know, but in the, in the writing room, you know, I, mean, I, I do my thing. I mean, as most actors do. And so, I mean, as I write, you know, I'm, I'm acting all the characters. I'm playing all the characters myself. And you know, in the course of doing City of Angels, I'm playing them out loud in the writer's room. Uh, until finally one day, Stephen says, all right, stop. <laughs> you got to play this role. We're developing a character role. And he said, you got to play this role. Yeah, and so and I got you know, a bit argumentative. Yeah, I said, I don't want to play this role. I want to keep writing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm having a good time again doing this. And so, but anyhow, you know, I mean, and thankfully, yeah, I, I knew all along from the time he said it that it was it was going to happen. I ended up playing a character in the uh, in, you know in the TV show. So that credit you're reading is kind of an accidental credit. I would not have been there had I not been a, actual an actual writer. Huh. How about that? Do you, um, I'm just kind of curious because this was a show that my, my mom liked when I was a little kid. Do you have any stories for uh, Murder, She Wrote? <laughs> any memories of that? I do. Well, Blaster, we got it. The whole thing. 500 right on his bazola. You got it, Doc. I don't bet horses. You shouldn't either. Yeah, I shouldn't have gotten married four times either. What can I say? I'm a pushover. Doc, Blaster. Oh, hi, Mrs. Oh, Fletcher. sit down, Blaster. How's Harry? Oh, in a lot of trouble, I'm afraid. His gun was used to kill Mr. Talmadge. It's very incriminating. Yeah, except that Harry says that the gun was never out of his sight, which means that someone figured out a very ingenious way to frame Harry for murder. <laughs> Sounds to me like they're succeeding. Look, Doc, we've just heard from the television networks. They want to go ahead with a fight. That's good. Harry says I can beat him, Doc. Harry's in jail, Blaster. Not very likely to get out. You got no manager. Well, not exactly. Ma'am? Well, Doc, um, I am the manager. You know, on the record of the Boxing Commission. Ma'am, you you don't know anything about the fight game. Oh, no, I don't. But you do. Jerry Quarry, man. And I don't know why this is the first one that comes to mind. Because there were a lot of stories, a lot of people in in the episode that I did, but you know, I played a boxer. You know, I, I played a, a skinny boxer 
with the worst legs. I, my, my legs don't look like boxers' legs at all. <laughs> but uh, you know, there I am, uh, be a player boxer. You know, unfortunately, something we did did was you know, all sparring sessions. You know, so I'm wearing, wearing sweatpants. You know, so I can look halfway legitimate. Uh, and so, but one of the sparring partners was Jerry Quarry. I don't know anything about boxing. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, <laughs> except that you know, when you're in the ring and a real boxer is coming at you, beware. You know, you need to not be in that ring, you know, because if, if they go off, you're going to be dead. When Jerry Carter crossed the ring the first time, put up his fist and made the approach, the look in his eyes, you know, told me that I was in trouble. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I was there in the ring calling for all kinds of help. I said, somebody, let's have a conversation to make sure this guy knows that it's not real. <laughs> you know, because I don't want to die today. That's what I would have done <laughs> if I were in the ring with a real boxer. I'd be like, ah, oh, he, he knows we're acting, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, man. But, uh, you know, I mean, she was wonderful. Uh, you know, I mean, it was a wonderful show to be on. And also, uh, you know, again, as careers inch along, I was honored, you know, I mean, to be involved in a show that had Ernest Borgdine on it. I mean, he was, you know, one of the, the, the stars of that episode. So, you know, again, it was a pleasurable experience, as well as, and why am I blanking on this name now, but the original TV Batman. Uh, is it Adam West? Adam West. Adam West, yeah. Uh, Alex would have knew that right off the off the button. He, he's a huge fan. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. What, what was that like? It, it, it was great. Yeah, I mean, he, he, wonderful gentlemen, both of them, uh, you know, really great guys. You know, and really, you know, kind of magnanimous, man, right? You know, because I mean, literally, I'm 24, 25 years old, and and, and these are guys uh, uh, with major credentials and Academy Award nominations. And in the case of case of Borgnine, I was happy to be in that company, get a wonderful learning experience, but also a wonderful social experience. Because Angela Lansbury is just the best, <laughs> just the best quality. Oh, you know, yeah, it's kind of funny you mentioned. I, I just looked her up. She's still alive to this day. She's uh, ninety-six. Yes, she is. Yes, she's hanging in there. Yeah, that, and that's wonderful. You know, and I, I, I keep seeing her everywhere <laughs> on, on 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 film, of course. Yeah. So I was looking at some of our other notes here. Uh, the Amistad Research Center of New Orleans, Louisiana, maintains a collection of Harold Sylvester's papers that document his correspondence, film, and television scripts, and materials reflecting his involvement with the Free Southern Theater and his Blue Bayou Productions Company. Do, do you ever get to visit that center? Have you ever? Do you ever make any appearances there or anything like that? I do, actually. I, uh, I actually taught at Tulane you know, for, for two semesters. Okay. Um, and uh, we, we made a movie. I mean, the, the, the course, you know, was to, to make a movie from scratch. You know, so we, essentially we started with a blank piece of paper, wrote a movie, shot it, and started the edit in the first semester, and then came back and finished it in the, in the next semester with a hurricane in between. The hurricane in between was Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. Uh, and that slowed us down a little bit. <laughs> We actually were making a movie during that class about a hurricane heading for New Orleans. And then, uh, you know, I put uh, all the, uh, it was all a digitally shot movie, put the hard drives in a safety deposit box in New Orleans and came back home to LA to spend a couple of weeks. In the meantime, Katrina hit 
the city, including that bank, flooded. Mm. And, and so, so you know, I spent a, a couple of months, you know, not knowing, you, you know, and you know, I mean, my, my my lingering thought was that I I put um, you know the drives in a safety deposit box that was above my head, and they're telling me that, that area, which I used to live across the street from, flooded, had six feet of water. You know, mm. so, so I'm sitting there for two months saying, okay, dude, was it really above my head? Which means it had been at six, six or higher. And is it, is it still safe? Well, yeah. make a long story short, it was below the waterline. Uh, so, I was able to recover the, uh, the the hard drives and we actually cut the movie the next semester. And so, so you know, I mean, the value was that we actually shot a movie about Hurricane Hidden for New Orleans that survived that same hurricane. <laughs> Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, that's that like insane. that's one of those truth is stranger than fiction things, huh? <laughs> that's exactly right. Exactly right. As it felt at the time, but but Amistad, you know, and one of one of the uh, set shots, uh, you know, in there was actually filmed in the building that now houses uh, Amistad uh, you know, uh, Research Center. And you know, I'm proud that they asked, you know, for my quote unquote collection, um, and, and I'm happy it's there. But you know, it's a, it, it's a great place. I, you know, it's uh, it's a great resource. You know, that I continuously use. That's awesome. Well, I think it's my turn to hop on in, Harold. Hot, nice to meet you, Harold. My name is Tyler. I wanted to switch things over to your film roles, if that's okay. So, your first major Hollywood role was as Nathan, a lead character in Sounder, Part Two, the sequel to Sounder. Yes. Well. It was not really a sequel. It was kind of a remake for television. But yes, that, that, that's correct information. Okay. I've never actually heard of Sounder, and since you said it was a remake for television, that's probably why. Well, some of your better-known films, and I'm just going to read them off, and don't you feel worried. If you have stories to tell, we want to hear them. So here are some of them. Well, you've already mentioned Officer and a Gentleman from 1982, Uncommon Valor from 1983, Come on, don't quit! Fuck you. We have to work together, everybody. Leave this motherfucking shit! I've been working my fucking ass off. And I don't need no wet nosed asshole Jerry screaming in my fucking face! Back off. Come on! What matters is that we are on the same team. We have to work together! Personal favorite of mine, Vision Quests from 1985. Hey, Mr. Tanneran. Hey, Loudon. Hey, you ought to try a jumping rope, man. It's a great treat to the cardiovascular system. Oh, shit. Hey, Loudon, I've been hearing strange things about you, you know? Yeah, well, it's getting kind of blown out of proportion. Come on, man, I'll guard you. I'm an animal on defense. All right. Oh, you ready, animal? Yeah! Come on, you take one. Go ahead. Hey, you ever hear of Tai Chi? Oh, is that a Chinese thing? Can 800 million people be wrong? Frequently. I gotta go to wrestling practice, man. Otherwise, I'd show you how to play the game. Hey, Loudon. Think maybe you're overextending yourself on a shoot challenge? Definitely. <laughs> you know you have a tendency to do that. Yeah, well, sometimes you got to, remember? This is like one of them times. 
Inner Space, 1987. I know it's hard to believe. Hard. Try impossible. That's why I want you there, to see for yourself. Then, if you're interested, the project's yours. Look, first amaze me, then we'll talk funding. <sighs> Damn this traffic. Gonna be late. Just out of curiosity, who's your guy? Your pilot? Uh, you might know him. Pendleton. Tuck Pendleton? Why'd you choose Pendleton? He had the right qualifications. Such as? <laughs> he was the only one we could find who was crazy enough to do it. <laughs> Let me tell you something about Tuck Pendleton. He could have been one of the best. But he hates authority, he can't take orders, and he likes to make up his own rules. I don't look so depressed. Experiment's bound to fail long before Pendleton has a chance to screw it up. And Corinna Corinna from 1994. Somewhere over the rainbow cloud. Mama, press it through his baloney on the floor. I'm going to throw it and fail. First, how many times I got to tell you to hold your sandwich with two hands, baby? That dog gets more baloney than we do. In choir practice today, Carl Johnson laughed at me when I was singing. Said I had a double chin. Said I looked fat. You ain't fat. You're beautiful. Now, baby, go a little bit easier on that potato salad, ding, right? Ding, wait, wait, ding, wait, wait. Ding. Hello? Uh, I don't know. Percy, is Percy here? Yeah, right here. Oh, you, oh yes. Hold on, please. Mama. It's for you. Mama. Oh, yeah, my lovely. I will twitch the rosy. Sit down. And I will. Sit down. I know you're on the phone, but I want you to sit down when you're on the phone. So, uh, <laughs> you talked to Charlie today? Yeah, ten more paid off, laid off. Oh, that's all right. I'll pick up some new shifts. As long as somebody's here to watch Percy. I'll call Mrs. Hopkins and clean some fancy houses. That's, 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 that's enough. So, yeah, any uh, interesting stories or fun memories that you can think of from those? Well, uh, pick one. Uh, Vision Quest. As I sit in front of the Vision Quest uh, poster here, uh, you know, it's got uh, you know Linda Fiorentino and Matthew, you know, again hugged up. That was a, a, a fun film to make. Harold Becker uh, again was, was director, but uh, the memorable is, is that it was also Linda Fiorentino's first movie, mm-hmm. uh, and we got to spend a lot of time together along with Daphne Zuniga, and so because our characters seem to have off days. <laughs> you know, simple you know, you know, you know, that that coincide. Yeah, so so I got to know Lisa pretty well, and Daphne as well, and we had fun. You know, I mean, we were you know kind of the three amigos. You know, again on on that set. Must have been a fun time. It, it was a great time. A great time. Like I could tell in when I'm watching that movie, I can re- always tell when actors seem like they're having actually fun on set off camera and it, it came out in spades uh, in that film right I, yeah there you go you know but another highlight i mean there are a lot of highlights on the on that movie for, for one and I, I won't remember right now exactly what year it was but it was the first time i ran into a quote-unquote video village you know harold beck i mean you, you, i mean normally the directors would be right up close uh, you know as uh, you start uh, filming a scene, uh, and so, but we, we were doing uh, one of my gym shots that I had. I think I was, you know, shooting basketballs, you know, in the gym one day, and and Harold Becker is nowhere around. Yeah, and he was off in a far corner, you know, behind a video screen, you know, watching the stuff that I was doing, you know, on tape. Never seen that before. I mean, it was the first time 
uh, you know, I had that personal experience. Uh, and so, so it was a start of, of, of a new era. But something else that happened you know, in that movie that, that is, became memorable, uh, you know, again, much later. It was memorable at the time. Yeah, and so, but uh, as you, I think, have already mentioned, we had a, a musical interlude in, in one of the scenes that we did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with, uh, I, I, I think it was Matthew and I in, in the bar. Yeah, and, and so, and, and uh, that was set up as a country western bar, correct? Correct. <laughs> Warner Bros. film. And, uh, you know, I mean, as things happen in Hollywood, you know, I think at some point they realized that they had this young new singer under contract and it might be a good spot, uh, I mean, for her. And of course, you all know that that spot went to Madonna. So that, you know, was something that was memorable at the time, but became obviously much more memorable as time went on. And she became the superstar and stuff that she became. Uh, and you know, and I love to think that it all started, you know, in that country western bar in Spokane, Washington, in that scene. It's amazing how all those things can just like all this, all all this superstardom that came to be all starts in these like tiny, what seem to be insignificant roles in these smaller movies. So it, it's amazing to see these connections. Igniting moments, I like to call them. Yeah, and, so, and, and you never know when they're going to happen, you know, until after they've happened. Absolutely. Yep, so you're right on point. Well, I'm sure my listeners will be angry if I don't bring up uh, the much more popular An Officer and a Gentleman. I'd love to hear some stories that you might have from that film. Wow. Where do I start on that one, man? You know, so, cause I, you know again, one, another one of the better experiences of, of my life. And, and like I said at the beginning, I have led a magical life. Uh, and so, so I've got mostly good experiences. Uh, and so, but, but this one was especially wonderful. And, and I'll go down the list of reasons. Louis Gossett Jr. <laughs> you know, <laughs> one. Louis and I, we knew each other, you know, I mean, because yeah, you know, we have a, a community, you know, and, and, and have always had, uh, you know, in this town, African American actors, etc. You know, it's the way the world works. And so, but I knew Lou because we did, uh, he had a TV series whose name just jumped out of my mind. But uh, he had a, a TV series where he played a doctor. And I went on the show, uh, you know, again, as a patient. We had a wonderful experience, uh, you know, again, on that show. So I got to know him a little bit. Flash forward, an officer and gentleman. We get to town. Taylor Hackford, you know, again, is the director. And obviously, Louis Gossett Jr. played the uh, drill sergeant in the movie, you know, that got him an Academy Award. So he played it pretty well. And so, but we get to, to, to uh, Port Townsend, Washington, to rehearse, you know, again, for a couple of weeks. But the object, you know, in Taylor's mind was that he wanted to keep us separate from Lewis. So that the first time we actually saw him in Port Townsend was when he walked out of that building and confronted us in that line. Yeah, as you meet the recruits in that movie for the first time. Wow, really? I always thought that he was doing one of those, cause like the, the reactions the actors give when he does his drill sergeant stuff made me think that he was just in character all the time because I would have to assume if I was palling around with somebody and then action and he starts being a drill sergeant I would have to bite my cheek not to laugh but you guys were like 
everybody like reacted very like strongly so that makes sense it's cool to know <laughs> it was a real moment man it was and you know it was taylor hackford and lugas's design you know again to do it that way and the story about that is that you know i'm there for two weeks yeah and, and stuff and, and you know Port Townsend is, let me tell you, secret about Port Townsend, there were two black people in the town. And one was the town psychiatrist, you know, which is curious to start with. To be honest, mm. I forget who the other one was. So there I am in Port Townsend, you know, for two weeks with nobody uh, that, that looked like me. But Gossett is there, and I know this. And I'm saying, where the hell is he? <laughs> and said, so why didn't he come over, hello, to say hello? Or why don't you know, people tell me where he is? You know, that kind of thing. You know, and so, so my reaction was a little bit different. You know, first of all, I'm reacting you know, into what's happening in the scene. You know, and so, but it's you know, also saying, hey man, where you been? You know, until I finally got the story <laughs> uh, about what uh, you know, Taylor was trying to do. Well, I'll do rea- I mean, it was, it was a good reaction. <laughs> I think it worked pretty well. I think it worked pretty well. So, yeah. But in, in lots of things happened, you know, during that movie that uh, you know, are memorable. Again, I mean, we were there, you know, for, for three months, which was, a, you know, I guess it's normal, regular amount of time for locations. But it's, um, you know, it was, it was pretty, we had a lot of physical activity in that, uh, in that show. And so, but, you know, again, it was a great experience. Another great experience, part of that experience was, uh, you know, my uh, other cadets, you know, and, you know, my friends, Tony Plana and David Caruso. We were the three amigos on that show. You know, we had a lot of fun, uh, you know, kind of paddling around, getting to know each other. Yeah, you know, I'll remember that forever. Yeah. Wow, I know what movie I'm watching when this interview's over. <laughs> oh man, but I we could talk movies all day. But all right, we but we got we got to go to the next question, unfortunately. But this is going to be a fun one. From your early work, it appears you did a lot of dramatic stuff. Could you talk about how you transitioned into comedic roles, which you do incredibly well? Well, thank you. And this may sound like a less than honest answer, but it is the truth. From watching, studying Richard Pryor, and not the, in the obvious way, not studying his comedy, but realizing how good a dramatic actor Richard Pryor was. Mm-hmm. And I know that is going backwards. For me, you know, and again, having proximity to Richard was important. Because, and I didn't know him very well, but I knew it a little bit. We had proximity, and there were occasions, you know, we were all together. So, so I, I knew the real guy and stuff. And then when you know the real person and can watch the transformations they go through, both dramatically and a comedic vein, you know, as well, You've got to take the lesson from it. And my lesson, you know, though it was in reverse, was that you can. You know, we do have the capability of doing both. And my conclusion at the time was that Richard's comedy came out of his deep pain, his deep dramatic pain. Absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, I mean, you know, to be really good at your craft, You've got to understand what those sources are. I mean, I was theater trained. I, yeah, I was ended up being theater major at, at Tulane, but I, I almost double majored in psychology. You know, spent a lot of time working in mental hospitals and that kind of stuff. 
I'm studying, you know, Stanislavski and Grotowski even, and all the acting theories. But at the same time, realizing that they all come out of theoretical psychology theories. And so, so instead of using Stanislavski's method, I use the ego defense mechanisms to prepare characters. Another level deeper than theater theory. So pairing that with having an actual Richard Pryor to investigate, it allowed me to kind of discover the range between drama and comedy. And, and that's, you know, I mean, my method is, is the same again to this day. Although people, I mean, that's not a Hollywood standard. And writers don't write to any kind of psychological theory. Characters in, in most cases, particularly on television, are not particularly well-developed. And so, so you've got to struggle you know, to find you know, a good performance value in a lot of the things that get written. But if you're careful enough and lucky enough, you can find it. Yeah, that is, that's absolutely fascinating. I was not expecting you to say Richard Pryor. And because you brought up Superman earlier, that was, I believe it was Superman 3 that had Richard Pryor in it. And that was my first in experience with Richard Pryor. And I did not realize how great his comedy was. And it's in the eyes. Like, it's in the eyes of someone who is bringing darkness and but also making you laugh without realizing it. So all this is making perfect sense. Yep. Richard was a genius. There's just no question about that. Wish he was still here. Yeah, absolutely. Rest in peace. But he gave you the idea of going into comedy, which got you on to Marry with Children. So, you come here often? Do you mind? I'm overwhelmed with grief. How'd you like to be overwhelmed by grief? (laughs) Which brings us to my next question. How did you get into Married with Children? And specifically, were you a fan of the show before appearing on it? I was, uh, because even though I was not a real student of the show, I was a fan because I actually was a part of that arena. I, I uh, I did a show called Tracy Holman show. Do you remember that? Oh, yep. I was a huge fan. <laughs> gotcha. Well, that show, first of all, I did only did two episodes of that show. And to be honest, I only remember one. I know that I did two, but I remember the one where I, I was her date for some uh, occasion that she had, and they made a play on name. My character was called Mr. Black, and I just happened to be a Mr. <laughs> You were Mr. Black. Oh, my gosh. Yes. You're Mr. Black. This is amazing. <laughs> I can't find Tracy Allman's show anywhere, so all the uh, times I've watched it are blending into my head. So I was really happy you didn't ask me, like, what episode was what. But I was like, what? Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, one of those things, man. But again, that character's memorable. I don't remember the second character that I did. <laughs> you know, on that show. But I bring that up because it, it put me, you know, on that that Fox lot, which is, a, yeah, I mean, has involved a lot of my career. Bochco was on Fox on the Fox lot forever. My office was on the Fox lot as a writer as well. But the memorable thing that happened for me on Tracy Ullman was that they premiered The Simpsons. So if you want to talk about the beginning of the beginnings, that's where it was. 
You don't know it at the time, but hell, you know, the Simpsons is still running. Things are being created that are long lasting. So that was, again, a very positive experience for me. But, you know, again, Fox being, you know, the birthplace you know, of, of married with children. And so because of my relationship on that lot and with all the personalities, the creative personalities that created married with children were all on the Fox lot. Uh, you know, and so You're I mean, all having lunch together, like <laughs> exactly. You know, I, you know, I mean, like Sam Simon. I, you know, I was just telling my son a story about Sam Simon yesterday. You know, and stuff so who chastised me. Well, yeah, in a fun way. I knew Sam because he was dating Jennifer Tilly, and we were all members at uh, a group repertory theater. So, so I knew Sam, and he chastised me one day because he, when he found out that I was writing. And he asked the question, he said, you're writing, you're acting, you're producing, what's left for me? And, so, and I said, time to spend your money, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> you just spent all, all that Simpsons money. Because uh, you know, as you know, he was the creator of the Simpsons. So all of that stuff was going on on the Fox lot at that time. So I was very aware of uh, Married with Children, but it w- w- was not watching it every week. So when it came the opportunity to be a part of the show, of course I was interested. But the process was the normal audition process. One buddy, Ralph Farquhar, who wrote a number of shows, again, over the years, a tremendous writer-producer, was a part of the uh, writing staff of Married with Children when I, when I auditioned. So but it was a very normal audition. Agent, get in there, memorize the script, etc and do the auditions. And that's how, that's how it happened. Straight audition process. And then it, it came down to, to two people for that Griff role. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tell you who, who it was. Me and Bernie Mac. Oh, oh, oh Bernie. But Bernie had, had other opportunities <laughs> and, and went on to become the, you know, the, the star that he did. He was all, already on his way. And so by then, so I, I may be the, the second or third choice uh, and so for that character, to be perfectly honest. Who will ever know that? But it was a normal audition process. And, uh, you know, we did uh, several rounds of that until finally in the, the last round, Ed got involved in the actual auditioning process, which, you know, leads to another story. Bottom line is, you know, I got the role and, and, and there I am part of a show that's already legendary. I mean, after nine seasons, everybody in the world knew what that, that show was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, again, from the beginning, I was very happy to be there. But it was a daunting challenge. And, and so, you know, even though I'd known Katie you know, from before, I didn't know anybody else uh, you know, again, on the show. And being the new guy on a show that, that has already got a rhythm is... A little bit daunting as well. I'm glad you said that because that's one of the things that I noticed about your role. I watched Married with Children for the first time about four years ago, and I binged it. All- yeah. <laughs> uh, my TV was highly monitored growing up. I binged it all, and when you appeared, it was like a missing puzzle piece and I'm not like I'm not buttering you up here. Like it was like a missing puzzle piece was added that I never knew was missing. When you got added in with Ed O'Neill 
as his uh, co-worker, it made perfect sense to me that there was something missing. A rhythm was missing in that workplace. And you just blended perfectly in with the rest of No Man Group. And uh, to hear you say that, like, it was a daunting thing to jump into a show that already has rhythm. To me, it's like you actually completed the rhythm in a way. I, well, I really appreciate you saying that. Um, you know, because I, you know, again, I, I, I remember the show getting very fondly. And it, it, a lot of, for a lot of complex reasons. First of all, <laughs> by the time I was casting the show, I was already writing, I'd already written uh, Passing Glory. And was you know getting script after script after script for feature you know film projects and stuff. So it was almost as if I mean, can I do both of these? You know, can I continue to write and act at the same time? Married with Children was a perfect remedy for that because of the way three camera shows get shot with rehearsal days. You don't have to travel far locations, you know, that kind of thing. You know what the week looks like. So, so it became perfect in that I could actually write in the dressing room, you know, when I didn't have to be on stage. So, so I had the world's largest portable computer you know, that I hauled in every day <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't have a permanent dressing room. But when I was not on set, I was at the typewriter, again, doing those things. But the other great value that, uh, you know, I mean, Ed and I, a kind of kindred spirits. They're both ex-athletes with similar outlooks on life. So getting on that set with Ed, you know, we just, we hit it off right away. Coincidentally, I mean, he's really the only person on the show that I ever hung out with. Uh, (laughs) And continue to communicate. There was some magic in our relationship. The fact that, you know, we got along so well personally think translated get to the screen it absolutely does like like i said i waited i was waiting when your character first appeared and the first time i was watching i was waiting for you to be as most characters that interact with al bundy to be more superior either in mannerism or by be loved by other characters or just just to seem cooler because that's how the formula usually went and you weren't you weren't less and you weren't more. You were compatible, which was very jarring and very welcoming. All right, Bundy, we've gone right, we've gone left. I'm gonna have to send you right up the middle. Can you do it? I think so, coach. Give me the shoe. bucks for the shoes, 130 for labor. All I've got is 20. Deal. Oh, by the way, can we interest you in our extended warranty? It's 50 bucks extra, but if you get stuck somewhere and can't get them off, we'll tow your big ass back here for free. Well, thank you for that. It worked well for me, too. I, 
you know, another memory you know, that I think maybe is connected is that my first communication about how it was going to work. I got cast uh, initially for three episodes. I mean, nobody talked recurring, you know, anything like that. It's flat out three episodes. And, you know, we're doing this. And I really got the first notion you know, that something else might be in the wings. You know, when Amanda you know, said to me in passing one day, she said, you know, this could turn into something real good. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm saying, holy shit, I don't need any more pressure. <laughs> she was she was directing at that time. She, she, so that's she, not just like gossip around the waterhole. And, and that that absolutely occurred to me because I knew what was going on there, that she had a different vision. Even than that, those things, you know, because, you know, she probably did spend time in the writer's room. She had to. You have to as a director, you know, I mean, essentially. Yeah, and so, so that that was a lot of weight, you know, getting that statement uh, you know, uh, from her. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, it was a very interesting experience. And, you know, after the first three, when, when they called back, then, I, you know, I, I kind of knew that there was an opportunity to become a team member. And things started to flow again from there. Was comfortable with everybody. There, there was not a discordant voice or personality. I mean, people went at each other from time to time, but you know, I, I had no discord or any problems. Or, you know, again with anybody, crew, cast, anybody. So it became a good ride. Yeah, you know, again as we went along. Mm, yeah. Amazing. This is awesome. You kind of answered somewhat of my next question, but I'll just present it as we wrote it. So when you were cast as Griff, how was that role presented to you? You mentioned that Bernie Mac was also auditioned, but when the role was presented to you, like when you were given a script, how was it presented to you? It really was not. It was not presented at all. Maybe it's a a misconception. I, I think most people don't realize how TV series work and how intuitive, you know, I mean, almost everybody on the set has to be from head writer to wardrobe to, you know, name, name a position. Movie sets are filled with a lot of intuitive people. Uh, and and uh, so, you know, everybody's reading off everybody, you know, I mean, you know, to get vibes and, you know, to proceed with whatever it is they're doing. The point I'm trying to get to is, is the fact that it's an evolving process. A lot of actors don't realize that everything you say on that set is being watched and recorded. The writers are looking and they're writing, you know, into what they see are your natural characteristics. And so, so rather than people making blunt statements, they just make adjustments. I mean, every TV series that I've been on, you do one episode and you find pieces of yourself in the next episode that, that that's written for you. You know, and so, so if you follow the progression, going by you know, the roadmap, which is the script, you learn. But as an actor, you know you have to be particularly clued in to those signals to help yourself and to help the show as well. I found this in back. If you want to make the one you got jealous. <laughs> Griff, I work here. That's funny. Dad never told me he hired another guy. And who are you? Bud. Al Bundy's my father. That's funny. He never told me he had a son. 
Daughter? Nope. Wife? Not living. <laughs> Four touchdowns in one game? Oh, hell yeah. That's why I told him to go home. I couldn't stand it anymore. Look, uh, this is not what you think. I've just been studying so hard for this scholarship that I tend to fall asleep. Yeah, well, look, if you're looking for some peace and quiet, I won't bother you anymore. I'm just here because I don't have any other place to go. <laughs> I used to have a place to go. <laughs> then I got divorced. Now I got two places I don't go. <laughs> yep. Divorced. She got the house, the car, the money. I got the right to remain silent. <laughs> but that's fair, I guess. Of course, what really ticks me off, that even Michael Jackson's married and I'm not. <laughs> But I'm not bitter. <laughs> you going back to your study. <laughs> and so, so nobody ever said, this is what we think, or, or this is where we want to go with this character. They just developed a character around the personality that they chose to play it. Amazing. Our, the next part of that question was, and you kind of just answered it, what was it like working on the set of the show at the beginning? Well, let me, let me, let me tell you, man. Ed O'Neill is a consummate actor. You look at the show, you see what it is. There's a silliness factor. There's an absurdity factor, uh, you know, which I think is, is part of the wonderful appeal of the, uh, that show. A lot of stuff is absolutely absurd. <laughs> I call it going Looney Tunes, if you've listened to any of our episodes ever. I, I call it the Looney Tunes factor is going up as the series goes, goes through. Gotcha, gotcha. But there were a lot of consummate actors all on that show. I mean, everybody was good at what they did. Uh, you know, I can, I can remember two times that Ed O'Neill went up on his lines. Only two. And he had all the words in the show. You know, <laughs> and so, you know, and that's doing your work and, and it's total focus. You know, so I walked into a, a scenario where there were a lot of focused people. There was not a fool, not, not a lot of fooling around. Our work days it's like, worked like an office job. We knew when we were coming in, we knew when we'd leave. The shows got done mostly in one take. We did two shows at, you know, at, the, at the end of the week. And so, but they got done on time. 9.30, we were driving off the lot. One of those things, you could count on that. So because everybody involved was so professional. That's that. That is just the reality of, 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 of what that show was. Just a bunch of professionals doing your thing and working off of each other. And having fun trying to stay alive. Yeah, well, I, you can definitely tell the having fun factor. And I think that's why when people, even me, 30 years later, watching the show became so invested into it because you can just feel the fun everyone's having there. Juliet Tablack or Amber, <laughs> she mentioned to us she was with you on your on your first week and she noted to us that you were very kind to her. Did you wanna if you wanna like mention anything about that? 
that's very kind of her to say. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but you know, again, that first episode, you know, and, and she's wonderful, by the way. But that first episode, my focus was on fitting in, getting it right. You know, and, and I think I, you know, <laughs> people often tell me, uh, you know, I mean, people often think of me and, and say to me, "You're such a nice guy." And I often correct them. Uh, tell them <laughs> I'm not really a nice guy. I'm pleasant. And because I'll kill you if I have to. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, and that's the truth. I'm, I'm an old jock, man. I was used to combat you know, and, and, and that kind of stuff. But uh, I do remember Juliet, and, and, and she's wonderful and was very wonderful on the show. Uh, and so I've been kudos to her. And I hope she continues to do well. Absolutely. Yeah, we had we had a really great time talking with her. Um, our, before we move to the next question, are there any um, good memories or uh, pleasant, use your word, pleasant recollections from being on the set in your first few appearances as you were getting started? Well, over the whole experience, there were bunches. I know that you guys know that we had future royalty on the set frequently. Our lighting director's daughter married the English prince. Oh, yeah. I was the one who got... I was on the our episode when she was uh, when she introduced when she was uh, introduced, and I was like, we, "Listeners, we have royalty here." I was, it blew my mind. <laughs> wait, wait a minute, you just said something that I don't know. When when she was on the show, she was on the show twice. She has one credited role and one uncredited. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> right, right, right. And that's a strange association. I've got a, a, one doctor in particular, you know, who is a big Married with Children fan. And so, but the only thing he ever asked me is uh, about her. This is amazing. All of us are really loving everything you're, you're giving to us. Because most of it, we've all just speculated. So you're giving a lot of context to a lot of stuff we just speculate about. Okay, are you guys um, going to share in the lawsuit with me? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, put us down. <laughs> we'll be there. <laughs> this question will be much, much easier, but it's something that we've discussed a lot. Did your character, Griff, ever have a last name? Now that I'm aware of, yep. You're mouthing with Calvin. Who's this? Griff. Griff, my man, you have a last name? Um, X. Griff X. <laughs> Are you Muslim, as in Malcolm X? No, I'm, I'm divorced, as in screwed over by the X. <laughs> Griff X. Griff X. I was just about to say, yeah, the closest we get is from the episode Torch Song duet from season 10, where Griff is asked if he has a last name, and he replies, what you just said, Griff X. Eh. <laughs> Perhaps that was a uh, Griff from Back to the Future Part Two. That was something we joked about. <laughs> I don't have a clue as far as that's concerned. I think the X it tells a story in itself. It was not written as Griff E X. It was written Griff X as in Malcolm X. You know, and I always take uh, you know everybody that names that, that chooses an X for a last name uh, as some kind of political statement. As I took it then, and again, fondly, you know, again, took it then. 
Yeah, I am a, a political person. And married with children kind of went out of their way to not be obviously political. I think cleverly political was more like what happened on that show. If you interpret the absurdity, I mean, you'll find a lot of, of politics. Uh, and so, But a lot of people only deal with the surface reality, what they visually got and, and heard, saw and heard, you know, rather than digging in you know, into what the implications are. So I took that X in, in the political vein. Well, that's what we're going to go with from going on. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, good evening, Harold, or should I say from my neck of the woods, good morning from uh, down here in Australia. Yeah, thank you for waking up. Yes. <laughs> yes, I uh, had a bit of a late night last night, uh, seeing good friends, was up until about five in the morning, saw the sun go up when I was driving home, but uh, enough about seeing my good friends last night. My name is Matt, I've been a fan of Married to Children for 15 years this June, I'm the second biggest fan in Australia after the amazing Annabelle. Gotcha. Good to meet you, Matt. I'm just ecstatic to finally speak to one of the cast after all these years. You're a legend. I loved you as Griff. Yes. Oh, I've got a question to ask you too. So uh, my first one would have to be, on Married to Children, your character was given all of the divorce and African-American jokes. So I'd like to spare a penny for your thoughts on that about that. So how did you feel about all the, getting all those jokes? Yeah, I, we, once again, I, I, mean, I, I, I think... I don't remember them being, you know, profoundly obvious. You know, I mean, yes, the, the divorce jokes—they are what they are, and I, I think it's in vain with with the overall theme of married with children, <laughs> which all, always involves the sexes. I always took the political meaning rather than the actual racial meaning of most of those jokes. And to be perfectly honest, I don't remember a lot of them. I tell you, the only one that I really remember is, is actually, and I'll give something away, it's the, the only line that I actually wrote on the show by, by doing an ad lib. Oh, yes. Because uh, we went by script. All the way, you know, for the actors to be as proficient as they were, for everybody to do their jobs all the time. Well, this opportunity came during a show where the Bundy family was kidnapped inside the house. I don't remember which season that was. Uh, do you guys remember? That was season 11, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and that line is, you know, they were holding you know, the family hostage, and I come to the door, uh, knock on the door, they open the door, and I'm confronted by this guy with a gun in my, my face. And the line that I said was, that Negro family, where they live at, next door? Sorry, wrong house. <laughs> that Negro family, where they live, next door? <laughs> That was it. And that was obviously racial. And it's, it's really the only racial line I remember. Uh, yeah, it's up from that show. Oh, well, was, well, one of my other questions was going to be, did you have any input with the writers? So was there any other input, um, even if it wasn't a line, maybe just a suggestion or something about, or about your character? None. I don't remember many conversations uh, yeah, about any, anything like that. But as I say, everybody's watching all the time. You can't even be comfortable. Well, you can be, but you have to know that even at lunch, if, you, if you're clowning around, it could end up in a script. Because, you know, writers, good writers, are astute observers. And by the time we got to 
season 10, they, they certainly knew everything about all the other characters, what they were learning, my personality, and starting to write to it. You know, and I think that's plain and simple. That's awesome, Harold. I'm glad uh, they, that's, uh, they, well, you were in the last three seasons, so I'm glad they got to know your style of comedy and uh, work around that and all that. Okay, uh, so of all the appearances on Married to Children, do you have a particular favourite episode or scene of an episode? For some reason, the one that resonates the most, I mean, there really are a couple. One is the Olympics. When Ed Ed does this contest on the radio, but Griff becomes a a torch bearer. Yes. Pre-Olympics. Was that Al Bundy? (laughs) No, that was me, Griff. When I get excited, I sound Caucasian. (laughs) That was a a very memorable episode for for a couple of reasons. We did a lot of work outside of the, the, the set to prepare for that making posters and all, all the prop stuff that we use in that show. It took time, I mean, again, to develop. And then, you know, there were some beautiful people. We had a, a couple of twins, women, you know, who were, quote-unquote, Griff's girlfriends of sorts. Yes. In, in a poster that we, that, that, that we made. And they, they actually were, were two of them. Uh, I think there's only one on the poster. Griff, there is a rumor that's got me tingling all over. I hear you're carrying the Olympic torch. Yes, I am. (laughs) Excuse me, oh backstabber X. What do you mean you're carrying the torch? Al, look at her. What would you do? (laughs) Girls like that a dime a dozen. There's my dime. Bring me a dozen. <laughs> what about friendship? What about my dime? Did that episode, because of the people that were involved, was very memorable. But the one that really stands out for me in its absurdity was the one where all the guys decided to go and live on the roof. Maybe I should just paint a target on my back the next time. Oh, oh yeah, you well, couldn't fall on the Now, we've all hit the ground at least twice. <laughs> well, I haven't. The gas is All right, now. Now that we've got that out of our systems, no more fooling around. All right, all right. Let's see here. I got bracket S and washer T. Uh, hey, Dan, hand me screw you. What? I said screw you. Well, that's yours, you! Oh, yeah! Hey, focus, hey. gentlemen! Focus, focus! <laughs> now we've all got a job to do. Ah, well... I guess Al won't be needing this old antenna anymore. Hey, wait, you can't tear that down. This is the home of a future baby bird. (laughs) 
The only future for this baby is in an omelet for me. <laughs> You're making a big mistake, Bob Rooney. You touch an egg, that makes the mama bird really mad. Well, I don't see no mama bird around. Maybe not. But there's a B-52 with a beak. <laughs> Who would have thought a bird could lift Bob Rooney 70 feet in the air? Well, she won't make a hundred. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, I remember that one very well. <laughs> I thought that that was just insane as a concept. In its absurdity, doable. You know, I mean, if you're going to be absurd, that's a good extension. So for that, I think in their tiny little minds, it solved the problem. <laughs> not, not realizing how, what the bigger problem was that they were creating. And so, so that was six out for me. Yes, yes. So uh, the respectively torch song duet. Uh, I've just um, got up here the picture of Griff, America's hero, on my computer right now. Yeah, uh, that was coming back to me right now. And uh, yeah, I do love that particular bit of the hood, the bun, the Kelly, where they're on the roof with the satellite dish and all that. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, that was classic. That was, I mean, the other bit of the episode, in my opinion, wasn't as good, but I love the bit where they're on the roof with the satellite dish and they're falling off. And <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. I love those dummy, those falling off the roof incidents as well. <laughs> so, on a bit of a tangent, uh, how realistic was the Griff dummy? Because um, obviously you can see the dummies like from a distance on a TV, especially back in the 90s when he's aired. But I'm just wondering how realistic was it? The head was pretty realistic. We actually, we actually did a, a plastic cast and stuff for that, so it had all my features. If you if you could see it close up, it, it was scary. My wife hated it uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, because I, you know, I kept it. You know, I mean, after the show uh, you know, for for a very long time, and I don't know why, but you know, she first hated that I kept it, and and, and hated the image. <laughs> You know, actually, but I had fun with it. So it was relatively realistic. Cool. That's all. That's awesome, Harold. That's awesome. Hey, Harold, one quick question. I, I only bring this up since you mentioned it, but do you still have that dummy by chance? I think that went in the garbage. <laughs> you know, <and laughs> okay. Right. I was, I was going to say, if you had that dummy, we would love to have a photo of it. But, you know, if you don't, if you don't, you don't. That's okay. Right. <laughs> no, it, was, it was just the head. We had a generic, you know, I tell you, one of my favorite lines in, in the entire matter with children, one of the characters was referring to us uh, no ma'am guys as having a, you know, the profile of a manatee. Hey, Al, I've got an idea. Bob Rooney's got a heated garage. Yeah, and he's got the profile of a manatee, too. What's your point? You know, which I think was an, 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 astute, an astute description. Uh, and so, so all the bodies, uh, that they, they only made one set of, uh, of doubles, uh, all fat guys, <laughs> and put individual heads on them as it, it needed to throw them off the roof or wherever. Uh, and so real bodies don't exist. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so 
another question about the production of the show. So, as far as a lot of the fans are concerned, the, in the injection of Griff in early season 9 allowed the show to continue for a bit longer, perhaps a few more seasons more than it would have otherwise. Uh, we as a collective of the podcast... We all, we all think the show would have ended at the end of season nine if there was no grief. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, thank you for the compliment. <laughs> yes, certainly uh, something in the, in the dynamic uh, did change. You know, once that character came in, because it, it gave, uh, you know, Al Bundy character another place to drive to. Because we shared a lot of moments, you know, that, that all dealt with... Uh, the nudie bar and women and that that kind of scenario. So I think it probably added a different kind of energy that may not have been there before. But I, I don't think I'm the expert. I don't think I'm the best guy, you know, again, to comment on that. But I just know organically, it felt dynamic as we did it. It was interesting to us to be exploring things that don't ordinarily get explored or even not, not allowed to even imagine on, on television, particularly at that time. You know, so I think that there was a, a positive dynamic element you know, to that character coming on the show. But thank you for realizing or recognizing that, and I'm flattered by that. Oh, Oh, thank, th th well, thank you, Harold. I mean, uh, my honest opinion is, um, married to children would always yeah, seem to inject new life into it. Like season eight, you had No Ma'am. Season nine, you had well, not only just your, your character of Griff, but also Amber helped it for me. So they kept injecting a bit of new life. Um, but obviously, in my opinion, it ran out of um, petrol towards the end. But yeah, so de definitely the character of Griff was very welcome for me, and uh, which leads me to my next question. Was there anything about uh, Harold Sylvester that you injected into the character of Griff? That is almost impossible for me to answer. You know, though I think I'm an introspective person, I, you, you sometimes don't have the ability to stand outside of yourself and watch yourself. Uh, I probably have a different concept of how I come across to people than the way that I actually do. Most people think of me, and I hate using these words, but I'll say them out loud anyhow, as kind of a big teddy bear. I am not that. If I had to describe what I feel like inside, imagine a picture of Bob Marley, dreadlocks and all. That's me. <laughs> but that I know is not the way that I come across. And so, so all I have to deal with is a second reflection. Not the way I come across, but how I int interpret what I think other people are thinking is the way I come across. So, so understand how tough a question you know, that is to answer. Well, th th well, thank you for that. And I'd also like to um, ask, uh, do, do you have people either in the past or now recognize you on the street as Griff? Or, and or if they do, quote Married to Children Dialogue at you. <laughs> yes and no. I, you know, yes, I, I get recognized as good. Even today, you know, with my hair all gray, you know, you know, people do come up. And you can tell Married with Children fans by the look in their eye. It's a special look. And I always know that, that it's about that show. Uh, and so, because, you know, they're invariably younger and they're invariably male. I don't know if it's your experience, you know, as well. But uh, that, for me, feels like the characteristic fan. 
So yes, I still get those. I still get people coming up and I still get those comments, but nobody ever quotes certainly anything that I've said. But, you know, I learned a long time ago about the power of people who, who are watching television. And I'll go back to um, an officer and a gentleman. And actually, we're in Port Townsend shooting that show, and I'm in a, a bowling alley with Richard Gere, David Caruso, Tony Plummer, and Deborah Winger. And I, I don't remember whether gossip was there or not. And so, but, uh, you know, we're trying to bowl. And I'm there with all these movie stars, right? People kept coming all up to me. Yeah, and, and so, because at the time, we were shooting Officer and Gentlemen, I actually had a TV series running on air. It was one of the David Gerber shows, either Walking Tall or Today's FBI. And they kept coming up, you know, paper and pen in hand, asking for autographs to me. And I'm saying, what the hell? Uh, you know, I mean, do, do they know this is Richard Gere, this is Deborah Wayne, et cetera. But what it was about was they were movie stars. And these kids didn't go to movies. They watched television. Uh, and so, so I was the famous guy in that group. And that's a lesson, you know, again, that I never forgot. It, it exacerbated over two shows on television. One was I did three episodes of uh, A Different World. Only three episodes out of the couple of hundred that they did. But people come up to me to talk about that show more than they do about any of the movies, Married with Children, or anything else. Three episodes on a different world. And I'm the most famous guy in the supermarket, uh, you, know, you know, on that day. So, so it's a curious thing that happens, you know, because of the way people watch TV and who they are. Indeed, well, indeed. Uh, well, let us rest assured, Harold, if you ever bump into me, I'll definitely ask you about uh, Married to Children and get the autograph for that. For that. So, uh, and just so, before we hand over back to Tyler, I just want to say, uh, with the average fan, uh, I know quite a few Married to Children fans, partly because of my influence amongst uh, my friends here in Perth, but uh, more of them are male than female, although I, I do have a, know a few, quite a few female fans and uh, actually got one of my friends' DVDs for her 30th birthday in, um, last, last year. Hmm. Okay, that's very, very good to hear. And she and she likes it. Wonderful. Yeah. So thank you for that. And uh, yeah, well, the next question will be from uh, back to Tyler. Oh yeah, great questions and answers, guys. I loved it. For Mary with Children, the episodes that you were on, do you ever watch them yourself? <laughs> Rarely. But I do watch them occasionally. And now, I'm trying to remember what's, what started this. Uh, yeah, somebody sent me a clip, you know, because obviously somebody online is doing, uh, is breaking episodes down, besides you guys and what you do, which is wonderful. But they sent me a series of, of scenes between Ed and I, the Griffin Al scenes, in the shoe store, in the garage, you know, again, everywhere. And I did not know that uh, anybody was doing anything like this. And to be honest, I, I, yeah, I think it's, it's how I, I, I bumped into you guys, you know, again, online, uh, even from getting that clip and those clips now, you know, they keep coming. So, so it's like <laughs> starting a whole new life. You know, I mean, we're talking you know, 20 plus years. To have a show that still resonates somewhere is pretty re- rewarding. I got to tell you, it feels good.
I think I can speak to all the fans out there that that's very, very pleasant to know that you you are happy that we care that much. It's it means a lot. And uh, one of my producers just mentioned that uh, I refer to you as Griff and not Harold. So if I keep doing that, I apologize. I hope you take it as a compliment. <laughs> well, when people come up about that show, it's always Griff. And so, so I'm, I'm not slighted in the least. Okay, good. Matter of fact, I've been thinking about changing my name to Griff. I, I, I'll support that. I will raise a GoFundMe for that. <laughs> so with uh, the other characters on Mary with Children... Besides yourself, of course. Do you have a favorite? And if so, who is it? Oh, it's got to be Ed. You know? Really consummate actor. And and again, going back to the question you asked me about the difference about being a dramatic actor as well as a a comic actor, if you want an illustration, look at Ed O'Neill's body of work. And so he's brilliant as a dramatic actor. Obviously, uh, I feel kinship with him. And I think, you know, one of the reasons we got along so well is, frankly, he was as good as he is. Period. That's all I'll say. Well, I I could have guessed that you would have said Ed. He's most people's favorite. It, to me, it kind of jumps between Ed and David, depending on what mood I'm in when I'm watching Married with Children. But if we ever get Ed O'Neill on an interview, we'll definitely have to ask him that. Uh, <laughs> hey, if you're ever talking with them, let them know. <laughs> I, I, I will mention it. <laughs> <laughs> if your character Griff was a real person, where do you think he would be today? <laughs> yeah, and I did read the question, you know, and, and, and uh, thought about it a little bit and didn't come up with a good answer. Because we had a lot of fun in doing a lot of those episodes. And so for one of the, the, the episodes that I had the most fun with, you know, was uh, where we judged the beauty contest on the beach. And now let's meet our five contestants. Miss New York, Claudia Harrison. <laughs> Miss Atlanta, Scarlett Turner. Miss Detroit, Marla Strong. Miss Beverly Hills, Angela Cohen. Well, she's got my vote. Sorry, Al. Was a moment of weakness. Uh, How much for a lap dance? Vote for me, and I'll marry you. Al, I'm voting for Angela, my new wife, and don't try to stop me. Now look what happened to you. You see what you made me go through? I didn't want to do it. And now... Yes. <laughs> you know, and so, so one would imagine that judging a beauty contest in paradise would be ideal. Yes, you know, I mean, if we could judge that contest in a nightclub, perhaps. Yeah, and so, but, you know, I hate the beach. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
I'm, I'm not headed, headed for that uh, that, yeah, that kind of life. But uh, bottom line is, is you know, in, in terms of what he might be doing, is I think that he would still be hustling. Because I do consider yes. him a hustler and an opportunist. And he's going to find a comfortable place for himself to survive, even though it, whether it makes sense or not. You know, so, because how do you dream about a life and end up in, in the shoe store with Al Bundy? But uh, you know, he would continue to do that. And, and I think continue to fall into fun, <laughs> as I think, uh, you know, is a singular thing about that character that I enjoy trying to portray. Let's have a good time all the time. Falling into fun. I like the way you put that. <laughs> so I think that's what he'd be attempting to do and feeling wonderfully. When I was reading these questions, I came up with a whole different idea of where Griff would be, but as you were giving me backstory of how the character was created, I couldn't think of it. I couldn't think of anything, so that was that was very helpful. The last question, this one should be very easy, but it's very important to us. Do you ever work with or reunite with anybody from the Marywood Children family, including anybody behind the scenes after the show ended? Easy question to answer. Ed O'Neill. Yeah, and, and that's pretty much it. Bump into Katie occasionally. I, I love the House of Blues. And I, I bumped in there first time, you know, off the set. Very first time and only time. Get at the House of Blues. She and her family that night. But, you know, otherwise, yeah, I don't see anybody. <laughs> Except the, the, one, the one time that... Uh, I'm doing another show. Actually, we were doing City of Angels on uh, the Laird lot, which used to be a part of Paramount and part of MGM and then became a, a part of Sony. Now, it, it's a little studio right next door to Sony. I'm walking down uh, the middle of the street, you know, going to lunch, and I get bumped into very lightly by a car. And I turn around, and there at a steering wheel, was a, a, a smiling Christina Applegate. I hate him. He's the Griff who stole Christmas. <laughs> anyway, that was great, Griff. Great. Great. You couldn't even tell he was acting. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Oh, I was hoping it would be Christina. Oh, that's great. <laughs> right. You know, who was on the lot for another engagement. We had not seen each other in a while by, by that time. So that was very pleasant you know, to see her again. And that's it. Otherwise, no contact with anybody in the cast. Well, when Married with Grandchildren finally gets started, <laughs> maybe we'll be having more reunions. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, thank you very much for that, Griff. You know what? Thank you very much, Griff. Thank you. <laughs> Back at you. All right. All right, uh, Matt, Matt again here, uh, Harold uh, or slash Griff. <laughs> yes, um, yep, still study, still here in Australia, still managing to get through um, all the way half across, halfway across the world. So, building on one of your previous answers, when you're talking about a different world and how you recognised from that, any particular project or projects that you're uh, mo- the most proud of over your career that isn't married of children? I've had a pretty wonderful career, man. In terms of having good projects to choose from. 
My, my all-time favorite. I mean, when people ask that question, they expect that all, an officer and a gentleman would be at the top of the list. And it certainly was the most, I think, financially successful movie that I was ever involved in. But that Inside Moves movie that I uh, mentioned as well, directed by Dick Donner, is my all-time favorite personal movie. And, and I, I think the reason is that you know, I was on track to be a professional basketball player, pretty good ball player who did not end up in the NBA. So when I got the opportunity to be an NBA player in a movie, it was an absolute dream come true. And so, so that movie for me, I was able to hit a lot of personal benchmarks by actually wearing the uniform and hanging out with, playing with and against real NBA guys. Some of who were as good as the Hall of Famers that I actually played against in college. And so that movie remains as a participant, favorite one that I've ever been involved in. And like I said before, it made everybody's top 10 list that year. And it's a really good movie. So check it out if you can. Inside I Moves. Inside Moves. I'll make sure I um, get some watches someday, um, Harold. I've got a long list of films I need to watch. But yes, I'll have to make sure I add Inside, inside Moves to the list. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, so as you know, you've been in the entertainment history for uh, uh, during uh, over 50 years. So now this is an interesting one. Uh, can you please describe from your perspective, your personal perspective, both the good and the bad and the ugly to the entertainment industry? Wow. You know, it was a very myopic industry historically for a long time. And I think it still is to a certain extent. My... Initial approach to Hollywood was because of politics, personal imagery of the way African-Americans were perceived, I mean, essentially in the world. The early observation of mine is that we're victims of a, a bad universal long-time PR campaign. And Hollywood is a place to change that, was my thinking. But uh, my understanding of how difficult that would be was not there, again, at the time. But I think, you know, we keep chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, and Hollywood consistently improves. And I'm not talking about in terms of dramatic content, you know, because I don't think that we're in any kind of heyday right now. But the bottom line is the opportunity for people who are more diverse than the historical characters, players in Hollywood is here now. And it's increasingly better. There's more diverse groups of people who actually get the ability to control the images. And we're going to have diverging images uh, you know, forever. And so, but everybody's got to have a voice. You know, I think if we're going to, I want to say, continue to get along, though I'm not sure we are getting along these days, but uh, you know, if we're going to continue to get along, we've got to listen to a lot of different voices. Well, th thank you for sharing your insight, Harold. Uh, I mean, the entertainment industry, I'm sure, is a very interesting place to work in, as I'm sure you can attest to. 
Now, uh, back to Mary to Children itself. Okay, so Mary to Children, as you know, premiered 35 years ago this April and ended 25 years ago this um, June. So, do you still see Mary to Children having a large following, say, 20, 30 years from now? Because there are actually quite a few fans who were born during his initial run, such as um, myself, I was born during season 5, and uh, Tyler was born during its run too, and also some fans after it ended as well. See, all this is very new and surprising to me. How can I predict? I could not have predicted this, that we'd be having this conversation all these years later. 20 plus years now, since I actually was on the show, 35 years since the beginning. That's an amazing number for me. So I can't possibly predict what's going to be happening in 50 years. Does that not really depend on how the world evolves in that time? then now I would not be surprised if the show is here 35 years years from now, though I won't be. (laughs) Unlikely that I'll be, but hopefully it will. Because I think think there's value even going forward. Well, very well said, Harold. Just for my own, own, I just want to say, I've done a pretty good job of promoting it here in Perth. So most of my friends, as I mentioned earlier, know me as the guy that's married to children. And uh, considering I discovered it uh, almost 15 years ago, channel surfing at my grandma and granddad's house uh, one night, I was like, nip, 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 nip. Because my grandma gave me the remote. And I'm like, nip, 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 nip. Oh, what's this? I picked it because of its name, Harold. Really? I was like, oh, what's this? Married to Children. I picked it purely because of the name, put it on, and uh, it was meant to be. They started literally about 10, 15 seconds later, the opening credits, and uh, about halfway through, I declared it my favourite show, and my dad and granddad walk in thinking, why is Matt laughing so hard? (laughs) Beautiful. That's beautiful, man. Thank you, yes, yes. So, a story I'll always remember, one I love to tell people, and... Yeah, so uh, definitely a life-changing moment for me, to be honest. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, I've got another, another one more question for, for me personally, Harold. So, speaking of the, 25 years ago when it ended, uh, the episode Chicago Shoe Exchange was the last episode that was broadcast back in 97, uh, which was actually released a few weeks after How to Marry a Moron Part 2, which was the last one to be taped. So... You were actually the second-to-last person that Married to Children fans saw in its first run. How does it feel to have closed out a series? I did not know that until I read that on the list of questions. And nor do I remember specifically what was in that episode. <laughs> I mean, describe the episode for me, if you, if you wouldn't mind. Okay, so Chicago Shoe Exchange, the last episode that aired. So basically... Alan Griff simply must have the nifty massage chair from the upscale gadget store. As they're broke, they decide to barter their way to more relaxed muscles. B-plot is, Kelly practices the newly learned massage techniques on Bud. These aren't bad. Great. Uh, Ring them right up. But I don't love them. Let's put them in the maybe pile. (laughs) Ma'am, my back is killing me. Unfortunately, not fast enough. (laughs) I just don't see anything I like. You ought to be sitting on this stool. (laughs) Got more shoes for our delightful customer. She's gone. Picky bitch. 
talking to me? No, 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 I'm talking to him. Picky bitch. <laughs> well, I see as usual, you have outdone yourselves with the store display. Thank, Thank you. you. Listen, morons, I've decided to restock the store. So I'm donating all of these old shoes to poor Filipino orphans. Well, they made them. Why would they want them back? <laughs> Just pack them up. Excuse me, I've got to go shopping. I'm going on a cruise and I want to look good. For her to look good, she'd have to stand next to a real ugly tuna. <laughs> Hi, got your lunch. Oh, good. Good to give her the money. I don't have any money. Well, I don't have any money. Well, you know, I could take those sandals instead. You know, a little trade. Right. <laughs> you got a deal. And while you're at it, take yourself a pair of pants. Wow. I'm afraid I can't answer that question because I, I don't really remember <laughs> that episode. It involves a monkey called Mr. Zippy. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> if that helps. Uh, yes. The final scene involves Mr. Zippy who has a is dressed in a shirt and tie just like Al. So that might bring back some memories. But, I mean... And personally, it wasn't one of the, my, my personal favorite episodes. But, you know, and, and now that you mentioned that, because I have seen a still photo of uh, the three of us sitting on a bench in the shoe store. And I thought that was a consummate statement uh, <laughs> about who those characters were, at least those characters you know, in the shoe store. And, and maybe that's the answer to another question. You know, maybe that's where uh, Griff is present day sitting on that bench with a monkey in the middle, in between us. Yeah, I can picture that. <laughs> picture the Griff today like that. <laughs> <laughs> that could be the end, man. Yeah, and obviously somebody thought that before, huh? So <laughs> but to well, be honest, that's the only memory I have of that episode. I'm glad you've got a memory of that episode. Just want to say, so that's the last question from me personally. We've got a few more from uh, Chris. Uh, so, Harold, I just want to say quick thank you for your time. It's been an absolute honour to interview. I would never afford to be interviewing any of the cast when I first watched this when I was 16, 17, back when I was still in high school. Gotcha. Well, thank you for being here. Yes, and thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you. Well, that means a lot to me. Hey, Harold. Uh, Chris Gunter here again. Before we start wrapping up, I did want to run a couple of lines by you here, just a few that are my personal favorite from your appearances. And uh, I know it may be kind of difficult to remember, you know, we're talking 25 years ago, 26, 27 years ago now. But uh, if any of these ringing any bells, feel free to, uh, you know, just uh, stop me and, and tell a story as I go along here, okay? First one was during your initiation to No Ma'am. Now, Griff. You've survived the other initiation rites, the purchasing of panty shields in broad daylight, <laughs> the attending a Julio concert in wig and matching ensemble. <laughs> Are you ready for the third and final challenge? Hey, I've got an ex-wife and I work in a shoe store. I feel no pain. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I felt like that summarized your character really, really well. I think that's right. <laughs> I don't know how I could add to that. All right. The second one here was actually during the season 11 episode uh, entitled Trash. Uh, that one, that would, of course, was a play on the word mash. That's where uh, Griff, Al, and Jefferson uh, joined the National Guard. 
Now, oddly enough, this is uh, kind of a goofy, corny episode, but uh, it it meant something to me, I guess, because I, I did four years in the National Guard myself. Lieutenant Johnson, I want to say this in the most respectful way possible. Get us home or we going to frag your ass. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, then, boy. Yeah. And then and there was also, in that same episode, there was a scene where uh, you go, Oh, listen now. Will you do something for me? Anything, buddy. If I don't make it, would you look up my ex-wife and tell her that you love her? No. Tell her that she's a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Man, your delivery of that line was was amazing. <laughs> Man. Yeah, again, you always go for the honesty in those lines. And, and those were all things that, uh, that resonated. Be perfectly honest, it's not my life at all. My wife and I, you right. know, on the 31st, we will celebrate our 52nd year of marriage. <laughs> so I am so ungriff-like in real life. Oh, yeah. yeah that it, you wouldn't believe. But I understand the sentiment. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, they, there's an old saying that behind every great man is an even better woman. There you, you know? go. And, you know, you have, to, you have to have somebody to support you along the way to have the incredible, uh, long lasting career that you've had, yep. you know, I, I've um, got the best. Another favorite scene. Now I know this is, I can personally tell you from all the married with children fan groups that I'm in, that this scene is one that pretty much everybody loves. Uh, and there, and the funny thing about it is there's no dialogue. There's virtually no doubt dialogue. It's Alan Griff sitting in the store. Al is looking at a copy of Biggins. <laughs> Griff is looking at a copy of black Biggins. And both of you are staring at the magazine, and then you look at you glance over at Al's magazine. Al glances over at Griff's magazine, and then y'all switch. <laughs> Do you remember that scene? Because the audience went wild. I mean, they just went nuts when you guys switched magazines. Do you know what I'm talking? Do you remember what I I'm talking know about? Exactly what you're talking about, man. And and again, you know, shout out to the writers on that show who understood you know, the, the real core values of that show. Because I absolutely agree with you. That summed up, if not the whole show, it summed up the dynamic between Al and Griff. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, I mean, I, I don't think there's a better illustration you know, than that kind of thing. Absolutely. And, you know, that was great physical comedy. You spoke about that earlier, you know, Ed O'Neill and, and yourself and, and, and really everyone, all the performers on the show were great at physical comedy. And then that scene drummed it up really well because there was very minimal dialogue at all in that scene. It was one of our brotherhood moments. Yep. Oh, yeah, man. That's I call that bromance right there. <laughs> <laughs> There's another funny scene that I really love, and this is the last one, and we'll move on. But there's another one I really love. This, this was um, the episode entitled Business Sucks, and this was the, the breastfeeding episode that took place in the shoe store. And this was really the first time, you know, this was uh, Griff's, I believe, his second or third appearance on the show. But this was the first time we really get to see Al and Griff interacting really well together. There was a protest taking place in the shoe store between a group of men and a group of women. You know, there was no ma'am and there was Fang. And the protests were taking place. Griff was in the back with a woman uh, doing the uh, the deed with her. He walks out and all hell is breaking loose. What the hell is going on? 
protest. We're dancing. Hell, that ain't dancing. This is dancing. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember that scene? Oh, do I, for a number of reasons. First is, I am probably the second worst dancer on the planet. <laughs> so just reading that in the script was a nightmare. And then having to do that, you end up with that uh, svelte physique that I had developed by that time, was a second nightmare. <laughs> so... <laughs> So you, let me just say it like this. That was acting. It was all acting. Mm -hmm. You know, and yes, I remember it, it was a nightmare, and I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that it worked. And so, but, you know, you know, one of the other things is it was a part of the realization, and we continued to develop that dur during the show, uh, is that there is an advantage, a very comedic advantage to being the second worst dancer in the entire world, is that, you know, you can... It gets very filmic. You know, we did another episode that, that I danced, yeah, that I was very happy to do, because by that time, I perfected my ridiculousness, you know, as a dancer. And so, so I started to enjoy that amount of embarrassment. I've been waiting for one year for a taste of that pie. So if you don't want to make this a double funeral, stop singing. So I had fun with the dancing on that show. Awesome. Glad to hear. And, and I'll also throw in that it makes me feel good that you you loved the the, the dummy and and the you know the dummies that were made for each character and that so much uh, uh, care and realism went into creating them because I always love the dummy episodes you know when they're falling off the house or getting knocked across the room or something because they insulted a woman or what have you <laughs> so it was always fun. Yep, fun to do as well. Definitely. Harold, one of the things that we like to do for our guests is we like to give you an opportunity to talk about any current projects that you might be working on. Are, are there any new projects that you're working on that you'd like to let fans know to check out? And, and where can they find that information online? Nothing that they can find immediately. I just started a new script at the beginning of, of this month. I've been developing a, uh, a historical drama TV series that takes place in uh, Louisiana in the uh, late 60s and early 70s and continues. Okay. I mean, the series will continue again uh, to present day. So we tell uh, sort of from present day, highlighting historical past. I can't say any more about it since it's not fully developed. So, Harold, being on screen provides an actor with a bit of immortality to, to their fans. What goes through your mind when you think that people may be viewing your body of work decades from now or possibly even centuries from now, long after we're all gone? How does that make you feel? It's a scary proposition, man. <laughs> Times change. 
And the things that you did 30 years ago, you wonder, you know, whether it's going to have the same meaning to somebody watching it today. First of all, let's use marriage with children as an example. Uh, you know, there's a lot of silliness in that show. For an African-American character, at one time, you know, some of the things that we do in that show were frowned on. That may be today. It, it may not be tomorrow, however. But bottom line is, there is a distinction, again, that you know, I will say is a racial you know, distinction that at some points in history might not allow me as an African-American actor to be as silly as Jerry Lewis is or was as a non-African-American you know, actor. Uh, and so, but so how you are perceived in anything you've done over any period of time depends on the period of time and the perspective of the people who are actually watching it. And I know that's you know, maybe a, a little bit of a convoluted answer, but I think in a hundred years, you've got to ask the question then <laughs> about what it means to whoever it is that's watching or has a question, because that's the only meaning. You, you know, everything that's passed is actually a reflection of what's on people's minds right now. That's my twisted take. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, your your answer makes perfect sense. And it, it also goes back just to times change as far as what's acceptable and what jokes are acceptable and what have you. You know, I, I, I was watching some of your episodes with the, the, this girl I've been seeing lately this this past week. And and she's old school. She likes the comedy. She 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 doesn't. She's not really offended by anything. But and we, you know, we were watching. And this is the first time she'd ever seen the show for the most part. And she's like, man, a lot of this would wouldn't fly on television nowadays if it were a network program in, in prime time right now. The some of the crude sex jokes, Al or someone insulting a a, a, a customer of the shoe store and what have you. But we're all thankful. One of the things that we talk about a lot on the podcast is is we're all really thankful that we were able to get the show when we got the show Married with Children when we got it because it probably wouldn't have aired 30 years before or 20 years after. It was kind of in the the right window at the right time. Would you agree with that? I think that's absolutely right. And that is exactly the point that I was trying to make. Uh, it depends. <laughs> you <know>. Yep. <laughs> What a curious life. Yeah, it is. You know, it absolutely is. Well, Harold, uh, I'm just curious. Do you have any thoughts on our podcast? I know we sent you over the Michael Moyer interview. I'm not sure if you had a chance to listen to any of the other episodes or anything like that. I did. I watched the Michael episode and I watched the Amanda episode. Listen to the Amanda episode, both. I think you guys did an incredible job. And it was ha I was happy to visit with both of them. I miss Michael. And so I have not seen him since he left the show and would love to reconnect. But I mean, again, I think you guys do a wonderful job. And I'm enjoying watching you. Now I'm a fan. I'll see how you analyze the next two seasons and then wait till then to curse you out. <laughs> well, that makes us feel good. You, you know, Harold... We're a fan-run, fan-made podcast. When Alex started this, you know, I guess five years ago now, the the idea really was to to, to dedicate a podcast to, at least in my opinion, the greatest sitcom ever made. The Married with Children is my all-time favorite sitcom, and I'm so glad Alex started it. And 
and the rest of us have, are, are helping him get it across the finish line. You know, it's a lot of work, but at the end of the day, we'll be listening to this podcast 20 years from now, 30 years from now. I'll probably be listening to it with my grandchildren and, and saying, hey, you know, I was a part of that. And it means a lot to us whenever we're able to get Harold Sylvester to do an interview with us or Michael Moyer or Juliet Tablack, who played Amber. Uh, it means a lot to us. And, and we really just want to say thank you collectively as a group, not only for making us laugh. You taped these episodes 25, 26, 27 years ago. You probably couldn't have imagined that, you know, as you said earlier, you couldn't imagine that, you know, you'd be talking to us in the year 2022. But we really just want to say thank you, not only for making us laugh back in the 90s, and but also making us laugh in the 2000s, the 2010s, the 2020s. And believe me, we'll be laughing in the 2050s and 2060s, too. And Harold, I would like to introduce you to our other three teammates who have been behind the scenes and on mute during the interview. Stephen, Luigi, and Annabelle. I, I'm Stephen. Nice to uh, meet you, Harold. Good to meet you as well, Stephen. Real quick, Harold, I'd like to tell you that I've been kind of a fan of yours ever since An Officer and a Gentleman. Oh, great. Well, thank you. I thought you were spectacular in that. And I actually came across a movie you did a long time ago with uh, Gabe Kaplan as a <laughs> basketball coach. Fast break. Hey, what's sounding ugly? Hey, all right. Who's this guy, man? Hey, relax. He's cool. Yeah, I brought you something. Who is this man? He's a basketball coach. That's all. Uh huh. He don't look like no basketball coach to me. Sure don't. Looks more like a pig. Hey guys, I ain't no pig. Actually, I'm from the landlord, and your rent is overdue. How you doing, David Green? Hey man, get him out of here. Hey, lighten up, man. Get him out of here, man. Hey, come give on, let's go. Let's go. Come on. Hey, you. You better forget you ever seen this place. Oh, God, this DC. place is a memory. D.C. D.C. Daisy. Donald Clarence Daisy, Morris High School, 1976, 28.7 a game. 148 basketball scholarships, turns them all down and disappears, drops out of sight. D.C. Daisy. Give the man his groceries. That's it, yes. Right. So yeah, I, I I knew about you before you got married with children. I want to tell you, I forgot about the movie Inside Moves. I saw that in college with okay. some friends. I yeah. forgot how wonderful that movie was, and now I've got to find this and watch it again. Because, right. Thank you, thank you. And it's, it's and listening to this interview, man, my respect for you has even gone up even more, just to see what you've contributed. I didn't know you were writing and producing and that you studied a little bit of psychology and are a writer. I'm an amateur writer and I, I agree. I think writers are very astute people and do a lot of observing. So it was fun listening to you. I really appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you guys as yeah. well. Right, yeah. And, and for me, Harold, so my name is Luigi. I remember you from Vision Quest. I had a <laughs> high school gym teacher who was a wrestling coach and okay. you know, I think like twice a year, he would pull this movie out. I think we always used to think it was because he liked Madonna. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, <laughs> I remember your scene very vividly. I wanted to introduce Annabelle. Yes, and I heard you on the podcast, uh, Annabelle. Pleasure to meet you. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you too, Mr. Sylvester. I've enjoyed listening to the whole thing. You're an absolute legend. I'm so honored 
and pleased and a little bit touched and emotional that you you took your time out today to talk to all of us basically and yeah just a big big thank you and it's and it's very very cool to speak to you and as you know I spoke to Michael late last year and to speak to you now I mean it's just you're both awesome cool people and I think that's hugely indicative of what a wonderful show Married with Children is so a big big thank you for me personally. Well thank you for saying all of that and uh I enjoyed you as well on, on the podcast that I that I heard, and I wish you guys continued success. Thank, thank you very thank much. You. Uh, we just want to say collectively thank you as a group, and we'll end it just by saying, uh, do you have a message for your fans as we close out here? Well, thank you for all the time that you put in, you know, checking us out. I can't speak you know, for anybody else, but, uh, you know, your, and I'll put this in quotation marks, devotion to that show is heartwarming. From the bottom of my heart, I appreciate you. Well, we appreciate you too, brother. It's, it's, we, we can't even put into words how thankful we, uh, we are. I grew up watching this show first run uh, as a kid. I watched it probably way before I, I, I should have been allowed to watch it. <laughs> I'll put it that way. But, uh, you know, looking back, I'm thankful that I was. And, you know, watching this show as a 12, 13-year-old boy, as a kid, I never in my wildest dreams imagined that I'd be a part of a podcast that would that would interview Harold Sylvester, you know, interview Al's partner at the shoe store, Griff. So it really means a lot to me. Uh, I think I can safely say it means a lot to Alex, our founder. You know, he's, he's listening in. And, you know, Luigi, our, our tech guys here, and Stephen, Matt, Tyler... Annabelle, it means a lot to all of us. We are uh, so thankful that you took this time out of your day. And uh, this is something that we will cherish for a very, very long time. Believe me when I tell you that. Well, I appreciate it, guys. And uh, if there's anything I can do to help you, let me know as well. And let me ask you guys to please keep in touch. Absolutely. Have a great night. Have Have a good night. night. Peace out. Bye-bye. Yes, thank you. Bye-bye. Wow. You just got out of prison? (laughs) That means you haven't had sex for a long time. None that I care to discuss.